Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I had a friend years ago who was a nurse and went to a uh, continuing education seminar uh, on infectious disease, and it was sort of in the beginning of, uh, of the uh, real, uh, what you say, uh, we kind of went through a phase years ago where, where people stepped up their awareness of the transmission of infectious disease substantially. I mean, when I was first a firefighter, we were still doing mouth-to-mouth CPR. Uh, you know, that was 30 years ago, and, and uh, that's gone by the way now. And uh, so this, this nurse went to a seminar, and she said that they opened up the seminar by saying, now we want you all to get up and shake hands and meet, you know, three people or five people or whatever it was. So, so they all, hi, how you doing? They talked, they shook, they shook, and then they all sat down. And uh, the leader of the seminar said, now what I didn't tell you was one person here had something on their hands that's not visible to your naked eye, but it's only visible under black light. And so they shut off their regular lights and they turned on a black light to see where the infectious disease had spread and it had virtually touched everybody in the room. Can't see it, can't tell it's being spread around. God says, I believe in 2 Timothy 3, there are some infectious diseases that get passed around that we may not see if we're not thinking biblically and looking biblically at the world around us. Our theme as we've been studying 2 Timothy is being strong. And as a Christian, you cannot be strong if you absorb some of the spiritual diseases that are around us in the world. And so as we start into chapter 3 today, we want to understand some of the diseases that we might get infected with and perhaps not know we're being infected. Follow me, please, as I read 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. When I read that last command, I think, did God need to tell us to turn away from people like that? I mean, when you see people like that, do you go, Oh my goodness, there's somebody I want to follow. No, you go, whoa, man, I want to get away from them. But the problem is, our world has become so infected with some of these things and then covered them up with things that look good that we can't always tell if we are being infected with something which is going to harm us spiritually unless we've got God's vision. The first thing we need to understand here is the days in which we live. He says, uh, in the last days, perilous times will come. Now, uh, uh, there's a present tense that is used throughout this passage indicating that Timothy said, we're in the last days now, and that was 2,000 years ago. We tend today to think of last days as 
as that time period in a, you know somewhere in the future when Christ will rapture the Christians off the planet and and the tribulation will happen the millennium and so on and so forth but God defines the last days a little bit differently and I think this passage is probably the definitive one God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets the fathers would be in a reference to the to the, uh, the tribes of Israel as embodied in the, the head of those tribes. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. From God's point of view, the last days are the times of the Messiah. When Jesus came, the last days began. And the last days are in process right now. Now, I'm not trying to say we're in the tribulation. I don't believe that. I don't want to say that the millennium has passed. That's not what I believe. I believe that God's viewpoint of the last days is they started with Christ and they will culminate with Christ on the throne of David, ruling the earth. Here is the comforting and challenging truth. We are living in the last days. That is both comforting and challenging. It's comforting because there is nothing on God's timetable preventing the rapture of the church. There's a new movement that's springing up around May 21st. And I haven't seen the signs, but I understand if you drive down the road in some parts of Linden, they're basically saying Christ is going to come back on May 21st of this year. Okay? Well, I'm going to preach a sermon, and the title is going to be, Christ could come back on May 21st. And he could come back in two minutes. And that's where the challenging part comes in. Because you need to ask yourself, am I ready? See, there's a real temptation to say, oh, it's going to be May 21st. I talked to somebody this week person is not a believer, and they are essentially living their life with the plan in place of getting right with God right near the end. Now, they said that to me from a hospital bed. And they're looking into the future with a currently undiagnosed condition, saying, when I get close to the end, I'm going to really get right with the Lord. Really? Really? <laughs> What's wrong with you, mister? That's what I wanted to say. Wow. Friend, it could be today. It could be today. It might not be May 21st. And that's the blessed truth. <laughs> John Harder's relatives would see him today, not in some time. And so when God says, in the last times, we're in the last times. And he doesn't say the last times will always be perilous times, but he says, in the last days, there will be time periods that are perilous, and there will be people that are perilous. We need to understand that we live in danger. We live in spiritual danger. He says there are going to be perilous times in these last days because men will be this way. And he describes how they will be. 
And he describes them in terms that are repugnant to us, and yet the most dangerous sin is often covered in behaviors that are accepted and valued by the sin-controlled society in which we live. And so I want to look at this list and try to help maybe expand your thinking a little bit to see what our society says and approves of that God condemns. So from God's perspective, he says, you need to avoid people who are lovers of themselves. What does the world say? The world says you ought to love yourself. The world says if you don't love yourself, you will never be able to love other people. And sometimes when you get down in the dumps and down in the mouth and people aren't treating you right, you hear this doctrine and you say, yeah, that's my problem. I need to love myself more. That's why I have, I have a self-esteem issue. And when that happens, you have succumbed to this deadly infection. What does Jesus say? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You do not need to love yourself more. I don't care where you're at in life. You need to love God more. And if you love God more, you will treat yourself and other people right. That is the great commandment. Those people in your life that are telling you, you need to love yourself, are wrong. And if you succumb to their information, it will hurt you. And Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but live for him who died for them. That's who you need to be living for. Don't go after people who love themselves. Don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Love God and love other people out of a love for God. The next one in our list is this, lovers of money. Now we look at that and say, well, we know it's wrong to be materialistic and to be greedy, but do we know that it's wrong to be ambitious? Okay, now, I know I'm bumping up against an area that's a little challenging here. But what we hear in the world is you should be moving ahead, moving up. And people say, oh, what do you do for work? And when you say, I dig ditches, they go, oh. And you think, I should be doing something better. And when you go to pay, all you have is cash. You don't have a gold card. And the people around you are saying, get more and go for more. And, and you work at a place that has a union and you have to be part of the union. And the union looks at you and says, you're worth more. And you run after it because, yes, I'm worth more. And you have just succumbed to thinking like the world. Whereas God says, love me. Use money, but love me. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. There was a movie back in the 80s, which now has a sequel. I haven't seen either one, but I've read little bits and pieces and reviews. And the movie in the 80s had Michael Douglas as a stockbroker, and he gave a famous speech to all of these stockbrokers and said this, greed works. And that was what got us into the financial collapse we just went through. 
greed works. You're absolutely right. If you're an unbeliever and you come to work in the morning saying, how can I make more money? Is there any way I can possibly make more money? See, Christians bump up against this when they get into businesses that are all about sales, sales, sales. I worked in a men's clothing store and there was a guy in our store who would say anything to anybody to get them to buy any piece of clothing. And he did it, and he was the top salesman all the time. But he wasn't known for being truthful. Lovers of money, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. We need to really check our ambition and make sure we are walking with the Lord as we move forward. I, there's nothing wrong with being promoted. There's nothing wrong with making a lot of money. Lord bless you. I've had a few friends who were wealthy. But the question we have to ask is, am I wealthy because God has blessed me or am I wealthy because it is the goal of my life? The third category, I've, I've put two words together. The word boasting and the word proud. The word pride literally means to, to be above or to see yourself as above. It's, it's the Greek word huper, which means that's part of the, the word. And then the word boasting means to, means to talk about yourself. And it actually talks about the idea of sort of an empty... We, we talk about somebody being full of hot air. This word talks about something being full of smoke, if you will. And so it, there's this big billowing cloud as people talk about themselves. Boasting is the outward evidence of pride on the inside. We see ourselves as better than others, and so we talk about ourselves. John MacArthur put it this way, these people are always the heroes of their own stories. My dad knew a man that he used to visit. He was, I think he was trying to win him to the Lord. And my dad was in the Navy in World War II. He was not in combat, but he was in the Navy and. And this fellow had been in combat in World War II, and my dad used to talk about this guy and say, this guy practically won World War II by himself. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I think if you were in combat in World War II, I won't criticize you for boasting. I, I would just put it there. But, but people who, who are constantly talking about themselves and puffing themselves up, their sin comes from the original sin. Satan saw himself as worthy of the throne of God, even though he was a created being and God was the creator. Obviously, Satan wasn't smart enough to understand, but he thought he was. How do boasters and proud people look in the world? They look like this. They look confident and self-assured. I'll tell you who I am. I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'll tell you where I'm going. Here's the five-year plan. And boom, 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 boom. We go, wow, this guy's a shaker and a mover. He's one of the power people. He makes things happen. And what's God's opinion of that? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Instead... You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. The Apostle Paul made plans for ministry. 
If you read the epistles in the book of Acts carefully, you will see that there were times when he said, now I intend to go up here. There was one time, though, when he said, I intend to go up here, which would have been going east up into uh, modern-day Iraq and Iran. Uh, They called it Asia then. And say, we're going into Asia. And the Holy Spirit said no. And then there was another time where he said, I want to go east. And the Holy Spirit said no. And so he turned and went west. And that's why we're evangelizing them, evangelizing them and they're not evangelizing us. The Apostle Paul made plans. There's nothing wrong with making plans. If you're a businessman, you need to have a plan. I understand that. But there's a difference between making a plan with hands open to God and saying, God, I think this is our best plan. Will you please help me? Will you show me? And then when you get there, you look back and say, look what God did. Or... You can be the confident, self-assured man who, who writes the book and says, this is how I make things happen, and this is how you do it, and on and on and on. And we're really tempted to look at those people and go, wow, that guy really has it going on. And when that happens, you have fallen under the spiritually infectious disease of boasting and pride that the world is so big on. I just finished reading a book called The Big Short, and it's about the financial collapse. And boy, it, it was some thick financial stuff for a while. But one of the themes that came out in it was pride. There was a fella down in California who started to, who started to I think he was in California, he started to understand what was going on in the, uh, real, in the uh, mortgage market. And he started to understand how they were making bad loans and they were putting them together into these bonds and then they... what he figured out was they were covering up what they were really worth. And he found a way to go buy insurance on the failure of these bonds. That's what a credit default swap is. So he buys this insurance. In other words, when this fails, this guy makes money. His investment group over 2000, or the year 2000 to 2007, returned a profit of 500%. Actually, that was the net profit. The gross profit was 700 and something percent. Okay? And that's what everybody else was tanking and, and uh, places like Bear Stearns were closing and so on. But here's the thing that's so interesting. He went to public meetings like the CEO is up here talking from Bear Stearns or Goldman Sachs or some big investment company and he's out there and he stands up and he goes, what's your stuff really worth? And the guy goes, whoa, it's all blah, blah, blah. And the guy goes, zero. And he, he's just rude and he's making these comments. But he was challenging them the whole time over years. He was saying, your stuff isn't worth anything. And these people said, you're nuts. And they didn't look into it and they didn't pay any attention. And the day came when he was right and they were wrong because they were too proud to think and to listen. Okay. Pride doesn't really even work for unbelievers. But it especially doesn't work for believers because God says he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Man, I want God on my side. I, I, I don't say that lightly at all. I want to walk with God so that, so that I can call on him and say, God, I need help. But it requires humility. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. 
It's humbling to say, not I, but Christ who is in me. But that's what we need to say. The next category here is the word blasphemer. And when we think of blasphemy, we we normally think of saying something about God, and that is the way the word is usually used. The, The root idea of the word is to speak bad or to speak in a purposefully negative way about somebody. I'm going to assume here that it's primarily being used about God because that's the primary way it's used throughout the Scripture. It could be talking about speaking between people, but there's some other words later that talk about that. So a blasphemer, somebody who stands up and says, there is no God. Somebody who stands up and says, if there is a God, he's this way or he needs to be this way. What does the world call those people? The world calls those people intellectuals. What does that mean that you are? You're stupid. That's what it means. If they're nice, they won't call you stupid, but they only call those people intellectual. And they've got the PhDs or the multiple degrees, and they're writing the books, and they're all smart, smart, smart. And they're considered smart because they're speaking evil against God. And we need to recognize that when so-called intellectualism or so-called academia starts speaking against God, it has stopped being smart and started being stupid. The scripture says the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And so when you hear somebody talking down God, you need to, the red flag needs to go up with a filter attached that says, I am not going to buy into this stuff. This guy might be real smart in some areas of science or some areas of math or some areas of of whatever, but I am not going to drink all of this Kool-Aid. The next category here is disobedient to parents. Now, we know right off the bat that that's a wrong thing in the Christian world. That's a plain truth in Scripture. But how does it get painted in the secular world? It gets painted like this. Being true to yourself. Well, I'm doing my own thing. Well, if your own thing involves rebellion, it's a sin. The next word here is unthankful. To be unthankful. Now, we know this is also a, uh, you know... This is one of those things we go, is that, it, that's not that big of a deal, you know? Well, the world says, I'm independent. I don't need other people. When I accomplish something, I have done it. And God says this, <clears throat> the way we should look at the world is every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. When something good happens in your life, there ought to be thanksgiving going out of your mouth and up to heaven. If there isn't, then you've come into this idea of the world, which is, I make things happen. And we could spend a whole sermon on that. The next one is the word unholy. And we we spent a good amount of time on that last week, the idea of holiness, the base idea is to be separated from sin and dedicated to God.
water while everybody's watching you. Well, now you know I'm not perfect. (laughs) Holiness means to be separated from sin and to be living to God. What does the world call the life of sin? The world calls it keeping it real. Now, here's what I mean. When you hear people in the secular media talk about how they make movies and television, when they're defending the use of obscenity or curse words or nudity or things like that, they will say, we're keeping it real. This is the way people live. And if you're not careful, you can think, oh, yes, there's got to be legitimacy and there's got to be reality. And God says, be holy for I'm holy. Our standard for holiness is how holy God is. It's not hard for me to be more righteous than the world in most things. But my standard isn't to be better than the world. My standard is to be better than God. The next category here is unloving. Certainly we know that's wrong, but there's an interesting word for love here. It's not the word agape. It's not the word philos. It's the word philos together with the Greek word for your deep emotions, which, which had the, they had this idea of, of deep emotions down inside. And so this, the idea here is one of, of sort of natural human compassionate love. It's the love that, would, that normally springs up when a baby is born. And even though a woman has just been through pain that us men can never imagine they look at that child and go oh there's my baby and they have this 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 love thing going on and you know if you really stood from the outside you'd say lady that just caused all your pain lady doesn't see the pain because all of this stuff wells up from inside and if the man is a a a normal godly healthy man he looks at that baby and goes that's my child that's my daughter that's my son and there's this thing that comes up from inside that's the kind of love this is talking about now there are other places where god tells us to make a choice about love the agape love you know first corinthians 13 and so on but this love is is the normal love that comes up from inside us if we walk down the street or or if we drive down the freeway and we see somebody bleeding on the side of the road we think oh my i need to do something there's this this urge within us, or, or somebody's being hurt, or, or whatever. We have this urge to do something. Normal human compassion. God says there are people who do not listen to their normal human compassion. And, and I struggle to put a phrase here, but I would change this phrase to this. I'm just taking care of number one. Years ago, used to be a huge trend, especially in larger cities, of people not wanting to get involved. They might see a crime happen on the street. I don't want to get involved. Why don't you want to get involved? It's because you're ignoring your normal human compassion, and instead you're putting on self-love. That word self-love is at the beginning of this list for a reason. It's because all of these other things flow out of self-love. We have this little phrase, charity begins at home. 
That's right, Dave. But love begins outside the home. God wants us to be beyond self-love. Next category here is unforgiving. And uh, in the King James Version, you'll see the word truce breakers. That's because this is a different word for unforgiving, and it literally would read like this, refusing to enter into a treaty. Now, that's an odd, that's an odd literal definition, and it's a unique word. In fact, I think this might be one of the only times it's used in the Scripture. Now, what is a treaty? A treaty is when two parties have been at war, and somebody says, let's have a truce, and they, they, they write an agreement by which the, 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 uh, the warfare ceases. This person being described refuses to sign a treaty. Now, what does the world call that person who refuses to enter into peace when there's been difficulty? The world says, that person's just standing up for their rights. Can you say Kim Jong-il? How many of you know who Kim Jong-il is? That's right, the guy who's in charge of North Korea. Does that guy like to live by the treaty? I don't, is, is there a treaty? Help me out, Kip. Okay. That they don't live by. Because he wants to do what's right for him. We can talk about our rights all day long. God says, you need to sign the treaty. We get enamored with people standing up for their rights. And yet, Jesus himself did not stand up for his rights, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, he did nothing wrong. He never said a bad word. You and I, even on our good days, say a couple of bad words. And look what happened to him. He was reviled. He was, he was rebuked. People said bad things to him. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he committed himself to God who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for ourselves or for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. If Jesus lived the way of the world, we would not be saved today because he would not have gone to the cross. But he laid down his life. Next word is the word slanderer. And the word slander, when it's translated that way, usually in the scripture, comes from the word that we get our word diabolic from. And it's also a name of the devil, diabolos, the devil. And it, it would be translated in regard to the devil, the slanderer. And slander is when you purposefully say something hurtful, wrong, something that will you know, cause problems for people. Sometimes the world looks at this and says, I'm just telling the truth. The gossip magazines like, I don't know what they're called, entertainment or whatever those things are at the, uh, at the checkout stand. This is their stock in trade. They work like crazy. They have all of the paparazzi, the photo photographers out there chasing people around to catch the actors in some 
uninspiring pose. Now, they would defend it and say, hey, I'm just telling the truth. Yeah, but why? Why? Everybody likes to watch a train wreck. That doesn't mean it's right. Without self-control is the next term. What does it mean in the world's terms to have no self-control? It means you're liberated. I have no controls on me. I do whatever I want. And boy, wow, we, we watched a show last night that honored some of those people. And it was a, an award show, and I won't defame the whole show, but we watched it and we're going, wow, these folks are just honoring this fella and this fella because of their liberation. Look at how they are. Um, scripture to go with that would be uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke, my 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 bondage upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. You do not find rest for your soul by being liberated from all constraint. That's the myth that many movements in our society are laboring under. When I have no constraint upon me whatsoever, I will feel completely good about my life. That's a myth. You will feel good about your life when you get in the yoke, when you put the harness on you that's hooked to Jesus. When you're plowing with him, you'll feel good about your life. You know why? Because when Jesus plows, good stuff happens. And if you're there when Jesus is working, you're going to get painted with the same brush And good stuff is going to happen, and you're going to look back at your life and go, wow, what a great life I've had. What a great life God has given me. Next word in this category is the word brutal, and it literally means not tame or the opposite of civilized. In the world, I think sometimes they'll talk about survival of the fittest. Well, you know, or they'll talk about getting respect. If if you're not aware of it, a lot of the gang violence is perpetrated. It has to do with respect, has to do with money, and then the respect that goes with your territory. You know, you're going to come in here and do something that I have not previously approved of. You're going to disrespect me like that. I'm going to shoot you. Now, we use the word disrespect, and it seems kind of fuzzy. Let's just use the word that it, that it is, Pride. I am the big dog here, and if you're going to come into my territory, you're going to bow and scrape in front of me, and if you're not, I'm going to kill you. And so we look at this brutality, and we go, what in the world is going on? I walked into the Tuckwell Police Department one day, as, as I did many days, and, and, and the chief and several people were standing around having a conversation about a case in Chicago that had just happened in which like a four- or five-year-old boy shot a five or six year old boy something like that i don't i don't have the ages exact but close and they're talking about this and they're basically going man what's the solution to this <laughs> and i said thank the lord and i walked in and i said i know what the solution is and the chief knew me well enough and he was not a believer that that chief and he said well yeah <laughs> but <laughs> why are people brutal because they're not Christ-like. It's that simple. There's no, there's no, there's no, uh, no rocket science here. If you are Christ-like, you should be genteel, gentle. 
Next category here is despisers of good. The word that I've put in the world is this word realist. The world will say, oh, you just don't know how the world works. Oh, yeah, I, I know how the world works, but I'm still fighting for something better. The word traitor is the next word in the list. This is the same word that was used of Judas in Luke 6.16. The traitor does not betray his friends so much as his only loyalty is to himself and what he thinks will help him out. And as a result of his self-love, he is willing to deny other people. Headstrong. The, uh, in the NIV, they translate this word rash. Uh, it literally means to fall forward. Uh, maybe there's a, a picture image of having a big head or something like that. Um, I think in the world, sometimes we talk about people being driven. Boy, they're just driven to accomplish things. And yet the scripture that I read for communion today, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Your ambition should somehow rise up out of your commitment to Christ. If you have an ambition, say, to be the President of the United States, the question I want to ask you is, how has that risen up out of your ambition to please God in your life? I think it may be a godly ambition, but it might not be. And so the question is, are you just driven, or is something wrong? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. The next category here is the word haughty. It literally means puffed up, to be full of yourself. One author said it this way, these people have become so inflated with a sense of their own knowledge and importance that they envelop themselves in a cloud of smoke and are unable to recognize the truth. I put a, a, a technical term for you, you that have studied psychology here, and it's the word self-actualized. The word self-actualized is a word in, in a psychological uh, a psychological diagram that a guy named Maslow came up with a few years ago. And, and if you work all the way up the ladder of human achievement and you get to the top, you are self-actualized. What would be a real common term for that? I would say complete self-love. Boy, I just have everything together. I know how everything works. Everything revolves around me and my way of doing things and so on. God says, no. Everything needs to revolve around me. The next one here is lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I, I think the world would look at a person like this and say, oh, they just know how to enjoy life. I don't know if all the Cinnabons have this or if, they ha if this was an advertising campaign, but I walked by one one time that said, go ahead, indulge yourself. And I do every once in a while. And I know you can't tell. <laughs> God has given us freely all things to enjoy. Does that mean I am free to enjoy everything as much as I want or to live for pleasure rather than to enjoy the pleasure that God brings me as I live for Him? 
We need, to, we need to understand whether we're loving pleasure or loving God. The next category is having a form of godliness but denying its power. And we're going to talk more at length about this next week. But let me just summarize it. Uh, the word here means outward shape. Um, the idea is, for instance, this is, this is something outward to me. Morphe is the Greek word. And I can put it on and, and we might say, I now have the appearance of a sport coat. I am not a sport coat, but I have the appearance of a sport coat, if you will. Um, there is something on me, but it's not in me. One of the most shocking things in this list is that people who live with these characterizations we've been describing do so under the guise of spirituality. They have a form, an outward appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And in the world, they would use the term spiritual. And certainly, this this has been one of the biggest turns in the world's verbiage in recent years. To be spiritual, but don't be a Jesus freak. Be spiritual, but don't tell me I need a savior. I was called a couple of weeks ago to go visit a man who, who had become hopeless in his life. And as we talked about the joy and peace that God offers, he claimed to believe in Christ. But as we talked, it was obvious he only believes in a God and a Jesus of his own making. Not the biblical one. So he lives only for the hope he can see in his life. He's definitely spiritual, but he's not godly. And the result is he's not living in hope and joy and peace in the midst of his difficulty. Having a form of godliness. This might be the thing that confuses us the most. These ideas and doctrines will be passed around in the form of some kind of spirituality. And if we're not careful, we will take them up, just like my friend took up the substance on her hands and didn't know she was getting it. What is the defense against these characterizations, these uh, character qualities of unbelievers? Well, the, the defense is in verse 5, and from such people turn away. When I was a volunteer firefighter, we had a continuing education seminar that was offered to us. And you have to go to so many hours a year to keep your certification. And, and I couldn't go to this one. And it had to do with train wrecks and uh, uh, like fuel that's being transported on the, on the railroad. Natural gas, that sort of thing. And I couldn't go to it. So after the seminar, I went to one of the older members of the department that had been around a long time. And I said, I said uh, Jerry... What did you learn at that seminar about them big tanker cars and all that stuff? He said, if one of them big tanker cars tips over off the railroad, you just put your track shoes on and run the other direction. (laughs) You just put your spiritual track shoes on and you run the other direction. Too many Christians. Oh, Pastor Dave, I can handle the fire and not be burned. 
I remember the last fellow that told me that. He's now in a different religion. I can walk through a hurricane and not be blown over. I can handle sin and sinful ideas and not be harmed. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. Turn away. Walk. Don't run to the nearest exit. That may mean that you have to not go to some seminars. That may mean that you have to work hard not to listen when the teacher is talking sometimes. That may mean that you have to let go of some friends who are pushing you in in these ungodly directions. I had lunch at Taco Time in Linden this week, and as I washed my hands, I noticed a sticker about this big on the paper towel holder that said, uh, that said, here's how to wash your hands. And I thought, okay. <laughs> no. I know how to wash my hands. <laughs> and I even know I need to wash my hands, and I do wash my hands, and I wash my hands more than I used to because I sat in one of those seminars on infectious diseases several years ago too. I have to wonder a little bit how smart someone is who doesn't know how to wash their hands, but I'm thankful that that sticker is there. And I hope they do wash their hands so I don't get hepatitis A. If they don't wash their hands, I'll be the one who pays for it. I never take in germs on purpose. Duh. Thanks, Pastor Dave. You go to, go to work tomorrow. What'd you learn in church? Uh, don't ever take in germs on purpose. Yes, that is the lesson. You won't take in germs on purpose, but if you're not keeping this in your mind and in your vision, you will take in spiritual germs on accident. And they will affect you just as much as if you had taken them in on purpose. We have to be regularly washing our mind with God's Word so that we don't get infected by the sinful ideas of the world that we can't help but touch. God will help us to be clean and careful if we open His Word and ask Him to do so. Heavenly Father, the world around us is a deadly place spiritually. and There are so many kinds of diseases that we can pick up that shrivel our spiritual life father don't let it happen help us to open your word enlighten our minds enliven our hearts protect us with your truth let us know your joy as we walk through our days i pray in christ's name amen